Book Two, Sections Twelve through Fourteen of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two: The Serfs of King Cole, Section Twelve. In the middle of the morning, a man came up to him, Bud Adams, a younger brother of the J.P. and Jeff Cotton's assistant. Bud was stocky, red-faced, and reputed to be handy with his fists, so Hal rose up warily when he saw him. "'Hey, you,' said Bud, "'there's a telegram at the office for you.' "'For me?' "'Your name's Joe Smith, ain't it?' "'Yes.' "'Well, that's what it says.' Hal considered for a moment. There was no one to be telegraphing Joe Smith. It was only a ruse to get him away. "'What's in the telegram?' he asked. "'How do I know?' said Bud. "'Where is it from?' "'I don't know that.' "'Well,' said Hal, "'you might bring it to me here.' The other's eyes flew open. This was not a revolt, it was a revolution. "'Who the hell's messenger boy do you think I am?' he demanded. "'Don't the company deliver telegrams?' countered Hal politely. And Bud stood struggling with his human impulses, while Hal watched him cautiously. But apparently those who had sent the messenger had given him precise instructions, for he controlled his wrath and turned and strode away. Hal continued his vigil. He had his lunch with him and was prepared to eat alone, understanding the risk that a man would be running who showed sympathy with him. He was surprised, therefore, when Johansson, the giant Swede, came and sat down by his side. There also came a young Mexican laborer and a Greek miner. The revolution was spreading. Hal felt sure the company would not let this go on, and sure enough, towards the middle of the afternoon, the tipple boss came out and beckoned to him. "'Come here, you!' and Hal went in. The way-room was a fairly open place, but at one side was a door into an office. "'This way,' said the man. But Hal stopped where he was. "'This is where the check weighman belongs, Mr. Peters. But I want to talk to you.' "'I can hear you, sir.' Hal was in sight of the men, and he knew that was his only protection. The tipple-boss went back into the office, and a minute later Hal saw what had been intended. The door opened, and Alec Stone came out. He stood for a moment looking at his political henchman. Then he came up. "'Kid,' he said in a low voice, "'you're overdoing this. I didn't intend you to go so far.' "'This is not what you intended, Mr. Stone,' answered Hal. The pit-boss came closer yet. "'What you looking for, kid? What you expect to get out of this?' Hal's gaze was unwavering. "'Experience,' he replied. "'You're feeling smart, Sonny, but you'd better stop and realize what you're up against. You ain't going to get away with it, you know. Get that through your head. You ain't going to get away with it. You'd better come in and have a talk with me.' There was a silence. "'Don't you know how it'll be, Smith? These little fires start up, but we put em out.' We know how to do it. We've got the machinery. It'll all be forgotten in a week or two, and then where'll you be at? Can't you see?" As Hal still made no reply, the other's voice dropped lower. "'I understand your position. Just give me a nod, and it'll be all right. 
You tell the men that you've watched the weights and that they're all right. They'll be satisfied, and you and me can fix it up later. Mr. Stone, said Hal, with intense gravity, am I correct in the impression that you are offering me a bribe? In a flash the man's self-control vanished. He thrust his huge fist within an inch of Hal's nose and uttered a foul oath. But Hal did not remove his nose from the danger zone, and over the fist a pair of angry brown eyes gazed at the pit-boss. "'Mr. Stone, you had better realize this situation. I am in dead earnest about this matter, and I don't think it will be safe for you to offer me violence.' For a moment or two the man continued to glare at Hal, but it appeared that he, like Bud Adams, had been given instructions. He turned abruptly and strode back into the office. Hal stood for a bit until he had made sure of his composure, after which he strolled over towards the scales. A difficulty had occurred to him for the first time, that he did not know anything about the working of coal scales. But he was given no time to learn. The tipple boss reappeared. "'Get out of here, fellow,' said he. "'But you invited me in,' remarked Hal mildly. "'Well, now I invite you out again.' And so the protestant resumed his vigil at the Mandarin's palace gates. End of Section 12 Section 13 when the quitting whistle blew, Mike Sicoria came quickly to join Hal and hear what had happened. Mike was exultant, for several new men had come up to him and offered to join the Czech Wayman movement. The old fellow was not sure whether this was owing to his own eloquence as a propagandist, or to the fine young American buddy he had, but in either case he was equally proud. He gave Hal a note which had been slipped into his hand and which Hal recognized as coming from Tom Olson. The organizer reported that everyone in the camp was talking Czech Wayman, and so from a propaganda standpoint they could count their move a success, no matter what the bosses might do. He added that Hal should have a number of men stay with him that night, so as to have witnesses if the company tried to pull off anything. And be careful of the new men, he added. One or two of them are sure to be spies. Hal and Mike discussed their program for the second night. Neither of them were keen for sleeping out again, the old Slovak because of his bones, and Hal because he saw that there were now several spies following them about. At Reminitsky's he spoke to some of those who had offered their support, and asked them if they would be willing to spend the night with him in Edstrom's cabin. Not one shrank from this test of sincerity. They all got their blankets and repaired to the place, where Hal lighted the lamp and held an impromptu Czech Wayman meeting, and incidentally entertained himself with a spy hunt. One of the newcomers was a Pole named Wojciechowski. This, on top of Zamirowski, caused Hal to give up all effort to call the Poles by their names. Woji was an earnest little man, with a pathetic, tired face. He explained his presence by the statement that he was sick of being robbed. He would pay his share for a check weighman, and if they fired him, all right, he would move on, and to hell with them. 
after which declaration he rolled up in a blanket and went to snoring on the floor of the cabin. That did not seem to be exactly the conduct of a spy. Another was an Italian named Ferenzina, a dark-browed and sinister-looking fellow, who might have served as a villain in any melodrama. He sat against the wall and talked in guttural tones, and Hal regarded him with deep suspicion. It was not easy to understand his English, but finally Hal managed to make out the story he was telling, that he was in love with a Fanciula, and that the Fanciula was playing with him. He had about made up his mind that she was a coquette and not worth bothering with, so he did not care any curses if they sent him down the canyon. "'Don't fight for Fonciula, fight for Czech Wayman,' he concluded with a growl. Another volunteer was a Greek laborer, a talkative young chap who had sat with Hal at lunchtime, and had given his name as Apostolikas. He entered into fluent conversation with Hal, explaining how much interested he was in the Czech Wayman plan, he wanted to know just what they were going to do, what chance of success they thought they had, who had started the movement, and who was in it. Hal's replies took the form of little sermons on working-class solidarity. Each time the man would start to pump him, Hal would explain the importance of the present issue to the miners, how they must stand by one another and make sacrifices for the good of all. After he had talked abstract theories for half an hour, Apostolicus gave up and moved on to Mike Sicoria, who, having been given a wink by Hal, talked about scabs and the dreadful things that honest working men would do to them. When finally the Greek grew tired again and lay down on the floor, Hal moved over to old Mike and whispered that the first name of Apostolicus must be Judas. End of section 13 Section 14 Old Mike went to sleep quickly, but Hal had not worked for several days, and had exciting thoughts to keep him awake. He had been lying quiet for a couple of hours, when he became aware that someone was moving in the room. There was a lamp burning dimly, and through half-closed eyes he made out one of the men lifting himself to a sitting position. At first he could not be sure which one it was, but finally he recognized the Greek. Hal lay motionless, and after a minute or so he stole another look and saw the man crouching and listening, his hands still on the floor. Through half-opened eyelids Hal continued to steal glimpses, while the other rose and tiptoed towards him, stepping carefully over the sleeping forms. Hal did his best to simulate the breathing of sleep, no easy matter with the man stooping over him and a knife thrust as one of the possibilities of the situation. He took the chance, however, and after what seemed an age, he felt the man's fingers lightly touch his side. They moved down to his coat pocket. "'Going to search me,' thought Hal, and waited, expecting the hand to travel to other pockets, but after what seemed an interminable period, he realized that Apostolicus had risen again and was stepping back to his place. In a minute more he had lain down, and all was still in the cabin. 
Hal's hand moved to the pocket, and his fingers slid inside. They touched something, which he recognized instantly as a roll of bills. "'I see,' thought he, "'a frame-up.' And he laughed to himself, his mind going back to early boyhood, to a dilapidated trunk in the attic of his home, containing story-books that his father had owned. He could see them now, with their worn brown covers and crude pictures. The Luck and Pluck series, by Horatio Alger. Live or Die, Rough and Ready, etc. How he had thrilled over the story of the country boy who comes to the city and meets the villain who robs his employer's cash drawer and drops the key of it into the hero's pocket. Evidently someone connected with the General Fuel Company had read Horatio Alger. Hal realized that he could not be too quick about getting those bills out of his pocket. He thought of returning them to Judas, but decided that he would save them for Edstrom, who was likely to need money before long. He gave the Greek half an hour to go to sleep. Then, with his pocket-knife, he gently picked out a hole in the cinders of the floor and buried the money as best he could, after which he wormed his way to another place and lay thinking. End of section 14